This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week, we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. The pandemic has made us reassess a lot of things we used to take for granted. And increasingly, we're rethinking and changing the way we work. Some of us have had to juggle being carers while also working from home. Others have lost jobs. And some of us have even changed careers. But I think there's a big question that we're all wrestling with right now. How do you make sense of the value of work amidst all this change and chaos? When the pandemic struck Australia in March 2020, academics began losing their jobs in droves. Within a year, 20% of people employed in tertiary education had lost their jobs. And every day for 18 months, union organiser Frank Gaffer would take their calls. I was day in, day out, sitting in my house, talking to people on the phone who were losing their jobs, the Walwan Wiradjuri man says. It was pretty intense, and I didn't really acknowledge it. That's pretty traumatic to sit and listen to people's trauma. For most of that time, Melbourne, where Gaffer lives, was in lockdown. Social and community activities were restricted. Work was all that was left. And, like thousands of others, working from their bedrooms or kitchen tables or wearing a mask providing a frontline service, he realised it wasn't enough. Like thousands of others confronting their own work-life balance during the pandemic, he realised he needed to do things differently. By August 2021, Gaffer was burnt out. He quit his job and started a new one without taking a break. One month into his new role, he realised his mistake. He did not need a change. He needed a holiday. He says, I had this really unhealthy relationship with work where I had to be forced to go on leave. So I had this little crisis of... Maybe I could actually just have a break rather than keep pushing on. Maybe I should just stop and enjoy my life. He returned to the union and cashed in his unused leave to take three months off. The first few weeks were spent without his laptop, his first holiday without a computer in 10 years. His newfound resolution is to take regular breaks once he returns to work, to find a better balance. The hardest part will be keeping it. Being a union organiser is really central to my identity. I don't know what I'd do if I just got a normal nine-to-five desk job. I think I might be lost, he says. The pandemic forced many Australians to reevaluate their relationship to work and the central role it plays in our lives and identities. For many, the shift to working from home provided the space and time needed to make big decisions. When Guardian Australia asked readers whether the pandemic had made them reassess their lives, 
Dozens responded by saying they quit or were considering quitting jobs that they did not like or that demanded too much of them. They turned down work in favour of activities they actually enjoyed, scaled back their need for material possessions and in some cases retired early, choosing to live a more restrained life on the pension than continue in a job they hated. Many said they quit jobs that didn't align with their values to take on more meaningful work. Others vowed not to let work, any work, dominate their lives any longer. The pandemic pushed me to make my life become meaningful again, says Rosie Pavlovic, who quit her job and moved to New Zealand to be with her long-distance girlfriend. I never want to work for something I don't believe in. Some have been able to restructure their lives through remote work, a change of career or a change of location. But many, because of insecure work or choices restricted by debt, poverty and family obligations, remain stuck. David Thompson is one of the stuck. Before the pandemic, he was aware that he was bored out of his mind doing his well-paid office job, but I could distract myself with plans and holidays. He says, that's not really the case anymore. And once that's gone, you just kind of look around and think, what am I left with? Thompson never really found his calling. He did all the right things, excelled at school and graduated with a science degree from a good university with the aim of finding any job that I can tolerate that earns me enough money to fund the lifestyle that I want. That lifestyle is not extravagant, but it has expanded to fill his income. He couldn't afford to maintain it and to pay the mortgage if he were to start again in a different career and won't risk his children's financial security to secure his own happiness. Thompson is determined that his children, facing global existential challenges, will have a different life. I say to them, if you have something that you can grab onto now, and you really love, then by all means follow that. And if you don't make a lot of money doing it, I don't care. You can live with us. Because the other way, I don't think happiness lives there. Joshua Badge, a Melbourne-based writer and academic, did place meaningful, fulfilling work over financial gain, and it left them close to homelessness. Their teaching contract at a Melbourne university ended and they were left without the bulk of their income. They had been working as a writer on the side, but without teaching, writing became their mainstay. Partly out of necessity, I threw myself into work, working more than I ever had, often 9am to midnight, they say. They skated on the edge of financial catastrophe for months. Work the freelance researching which paid their bills, felt pointless against the backdrop of global catastrophe and there are more catastrophes on the horizon. There is a real sense of nihilism about that. The immediate material needs aside, why should we be working at all? What is the point of it, says Badge? But the crisis did lead to a shift in identity. Now when Badge is asked, so what do you do? They answer, I'm a writer. I now tend to answer with what I want to be doing first and what I'm doing for money second, they say. 
Writing is not remunerative at all, but it's what I love to do and what I want to do with my life. Badge is clear that they are choosing a life of doing what they love over a life of financial stability because the latter does not even feel like an option. Owning a home feels out of reach. Many of their peers are living in share houses in their 40s. If work was more stable, those same people might be taking long service leave at this point in their careers. Instead, they are burning out. Kristen O'Connell was granted the disability support pension in early 2020 after illness stymied her career in the not-for-profit sector. She spent the last two years working with the Unemployed Workers' Union to support and advocate for those navigating the pandemic on below-poverty-line jobless benefits. It is hard, uncompensated work and caused her to unpick one of the fundamental tenets of modern society that work is inherently tied to income. Lots of extremely valuable labour is unpaid and lots of totally worthless labour is highly paid, she says. In a roundabout way, she says, the pandemic exposed more privileged people to the idea of unpaid work. As their office jobs went remote, they suddenly had time to pursue other interests. O'Connell hopes the desire to keep that time may build into a movement of working less. That provides more opportunity for everyone to do more unpaid work that gives them satisfaction in their life and helps them support people who they care about. But O'Connell is not hopeful the change in attitude to low-paid and unpaid work will outlast the crisis. She has already watched as the federal government doubled unemployment benefits overnight, then shrunk them back a year later with minimal protest. None of those changes stuck with people. While causing some to reconsider the point of work, for many, the pandemic fundamentally reshaped how and where they worked. A Productivity Commission report from last September said that up to 40% of Australian workers had worked from home during the pandemic up from the ABS estimates of about 24% doing at least one day a week at home in March 2020. The Productivity Commission found that for some, working from home was a welcome and hopefully permanent change, and others an additional stressor as lines between work and personal time became blurred. One reader told Guardian Australia that their workplace had become fully flexible and they did not plan to go into the office more than one day a week this year. This is huge for me as a neurodivergent person and a single parent, they said. I'm much more committed to my job and have produced more in the last two years than in previous years. I have also become much closer with my children as I was working full-time out of the home previously. Another said they felt the pandemic had eased the stigma on men working from home or adopting more caring responsibilities. I'm prioritising myself and my career, but not at the detriment of everything else. Others said working from home made them feel isolated and overwhelmed. The pandemic increased rates of burnout, particularly among women, says Australian researcher Gabriela Tavella. Tavella has spent the past few years researching burnout as a workplace disease alongside Professor Gordon Parker at the University of New South Wales. 
The pandemic has seen women disproportionately affected by burnout because of a phenomenon called the second shift, which is when you come home from work and then you have to take on primary care and home duties. A second shift of work, she says. These workloads during the pandemic overlapped. But despite the impact it had on women with children, Tavella says working from home during the pandemic allowed some people to reclaim time that would otherwise be spent in long commutes, resulting in a better work-life balance. According to a June 2021 report by the ABS, working from home and spending more time with friends and family were the two elements of life under COVID that people most wanted to retain after the pandemic. Instead of getting on a train at 6am, people sleep later, go for a walk and still make their 9am meeting. They could do laundry and other tasks in their lunch breaks, freeing up their weekends for other pursuits. For many workers, the risk of blurred boundaries between personal and work time is heavily outweighed by the freedom and flexibility of working from home. A report by the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work found that despite concerns about unpaid overtime and so on, 65% of people working from home expected to continue doing so after the pandemic. Major workplaces have responded by introducing more flexible working. The Victorian Public Service now offers flexible working on all jobs, New South Wales Public Service, Telstra and major accounting firms Deloitte and EY all did so prior to the pandemic. A 2021 study of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency found that four out of five workplaces of more than 100 employees had formal flexible workplace policies and there was an overall upward trend in the number of employers doing so. Flexible work, it said, had the capacity to improve worker satisfaction, productivity and gender equality. But Australian workplaces have been slower to introduce fully remote work, meaning people still need to live close enough to their workplace to go in a few times a week. Employment lawyer Rob Jackson expects that to change. At the moment, people are still trying to recover from the shock of the pandemic and what it all means, and some are defaulting back to what was normal two years ago, he says. But I think in 10 years' time, the working-from-home model will be much more commonplace. Traditional employers will see the cost benefits of not having an office once they realise that the world hasn't fallen apart. Face-to-face meetings are still believed more effective than those which take place on video conferencing. And it is important for staff morale and workplace cohesion that employees know each other as more than a series of tiles on a group video call at the weekly team meeting, like a workplace game of guess who. But there's also a strand of presenteeism among employers who want employees in the office, five days a week where they can be supervised. That's a mentality, Jackson says, which is likely to be rejected by workers who have the option to move on. There will be diehards who will maintain that five days a week, Monday to Friday, in the office is the only way to operate, but I think they're going to be in an increasing minority. That was Maybe I Should Just Stop and Enjoy My Life, How the Pandemic is Making Us Rethink Work 
by Calla Walquist. The reader was Carmelina DiGuglielmo. Some names in this article were changed. The oldest books in both the New South Wales and Victorian state libraries are about 4,000 years old. They're both clay tablets, circa 18th century BC. A herbarium in Sydney, which is kind of like a plant library, doesn't go back quite that far, but it is home to plant specimens that are hundreds of years old. This next story takes us inside the massive task of preserving over a million plant specimens to live on in the digital age. Outside the Australian Botanic Garden Mount Annan in southwestern Sydney are four shipping containers with freezers inside. Over the next six months, more than a million plant specimens will be cycled through the containers, each spending about a week in the cold to rid them of any insects. It's an important step in a large operation to relocate National Herbarium of New South Wales from the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney to a new facility at the Mount Annan site. Once inside, the collection will be moved into vaults that have been cleaned and fumigated and are temperature controlled at 16 degrees Celsius with 45 to 50 percent relative humidity to prevent insect infestations and mold. The herbarium's collections manager is Hannah McPherson. She says, Just about any plant you get growing in the bush is probably represented in our collection. We have really iconic Australian plants like wattle, eucalyptus, and Sturt's desert pea. And then there are more difficult to manage things like cactus and stinging trees and palms that we have to house in a different way by hanging them in lockers. The relocation will mark the end point for another project that will make the herbarium, which is not physically open to the public, much more accessible to researchers and the broader community. For nearly three years, Staff and volunteers have been going through about 70,000 boxes in a mammoth undertaking to digitize the herbarium's collection. It's the largest mass digitization of a natural history collection undertaken in the Southern Hemisphere. And by the time it is completed, there will be a digital record of 99% of the specimens the herbarium holds. The process has allowed staff to do something that had never occurred at the herbarium before. It's the largest mass digitization of a natural history collection undertaken in the Southern Hemisphere. And by the time it is completed, there will be a digital record of 99% of the specimens the herbarium holds. The process has allowed staff to do something that had never occurred at the herbarium before. They've looked at every specimen the facility holds, auditing the entire collection, which covers Australian and global locations and dates back to samples taken in the 1700s. Something that most people don't know is that institutions like this one don't know everything they have, says the herbarium's digitization manager, Andre Badiou. The Royal Botanic Garden is now the longest-running scientific institution in Australia. If you've got things that have been collected since that time, things get put away in boxes. There are also other facilities that close down and send us their collections. It's just not possible to keep up with that kind of input. So after a couple of years, 
you've lost track of everything you have. To digitize the collection, every specimen was given a QR code and put on a conveyor belt that had cameras at the mid and end points. Sensors would read the label, images were taken and auto-cropped, and the specimen was then packed into a trolley. Each specimen spent about two seconds in front of the camera. You're getting about 4,000 images a day going through. You can imagine just with a camera, if you had a million plants to take photos of, it would take forever, says Bedju. The images were sent to the Netherlands-based digitization company Picturay, which created different file types, some for internal use at the herbarium and others that are being uploaded to Amazon Web Services for scientists and the public to access. Alimbo, a specialized transcription service based in Suriname, has also been working with herbarium staff to transcribe handwritten labels into digital records. Eventually, every specimen will end up on the Atlas of Living Australia, and infrastructure is in development to make the whole collection more searchable. Through the course of the audit, items were discovered that herbarium staff had not realized were in their possession. These include two specimens that predate the herbarium's existing special collection of 824 specimens Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander collected in Australia in 1770. One of them is a snowberry, Orgaltheria antipoda, collected in 1769 in New Zealand. The other is Pariateria dibilis, a herb native to Australia and New Zealand that Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander collected the same year from Tolaga, Opuragi, and Motoro. They will be added to the special collections vault at the new state-of-the-art building at Mount Annan. The digitization process also uncovered previously unknown illustrations in the specimen boxes, including work by the Australian botanical artist Margaret Flockton. It has resulted in a doubling of the herbarium's illustration library, which is also being digitized and will remain at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Sydney. Most of the specimens the herbarium holds were collected by botanists. Older samples are markers of colonialism, and the white male field it was for a long time, Badger says. There are also samples collected by gardeners, bushwalkers, and farmers trying to identify plants on their properties, or orchid collectors who travel the world just to see one particular plant. Badger says one particular important collection is from a woman who followed her husband to remote Western Australia. She collected dried and wrote about plant life on a property in a part of the country that is not represented anywhere else in the more than one million specimens. About 8,000 new items are added to the herbarium each year. The specimens are used for ecology, evolutionary studies, botanical consulting, artworks, and bush regeneration. McPherson recently gave a talk to a group of poets using the specimens for inspiration. There are narcotic plants such as opium poppies, which are kept under lock and key, and the site runs an identification service that is often called upon to identify items in criminal or poisoning cases. McPherson says anything related to looking after the environment also ends up coming back to the specimens in some way. The completed digitization project will open the herbarium up on a scale that hasn't been possible previously. She says... Often people think of a herbarium like a museum. 
They keep lots of old stuff in there. But for us as scientists, we think of it as an active research collection because those old specimens are still just as relevant as the ones collected today. It's not just a dusty old warehouse. The herbarium is part of a global lending and borrowing network that involves sending physical specimens to facilities all over the world for scientific research. The new images are of such high quality that researchers may no longer need to work with the actual physical specimen. The point of the herbarium specimen is not just to be a plant in a collection. It's a plant that represents a time and a place. We don't just learn about that plant, but a whole landscape and that landscape through time, says McPherson. That includes looking at how a landscape has changed, how human activities have changed and reduced plant populations, and how the climate crisis is affecting plants all the way down to leaf shape. She says, we could do that to an extent before, but now there is just so much more we can do that will help us with our science. That was Heavy Lifting at Sydney's Herbarium, the quest to move and catalogue more than one million plant specimens by Lisa Cox. The reader was Shaka Cook. And you can find photos of the National Herbarium of New South Wales at the link on our show's website. Maybe we're caring more about the environment these days, or maybe we're wary of spending our stagnant wages, but the days of the material girl seem to be over. You only have to look at the number of self-help books and reality TV shows dedicated to the art of decluttering to see that more people are trying, at least, to downsize their lives. In fact, you can find out a lot about a person from the stuff they give away. That's what Guardian Australia reporter Tori Shepherd learned when she went fishing through the luggage of Australia's former Foreign Affairs Minister, Alexander Downer. The first things that fell out of Alexander Downer's suitcase were some fish nets. In late 2015, when Downer was UK High Commissioner and living in London with his wife, Nikki, they decided to sell his late parents' South Australian mansion, Martincell, and auction all the contents. Mahogany furniture, silver, crystal, a rare Hans Heysen painting all went under the hammer. Heysen's gums in the mist fetched $24,000, according to the advertiser. A Ming dynasty jar went for $800. Among the pile of stuff on the auction website the following year was a stack of six suitcases. I was moving house and wanted some hipster-type storage. I had previously bought a marvellous old steamer trunk that belonged to Montgomery Clift, or so I was told, and was thinking some vintage suitcases for old papers and photos and mixtapes would be just the ticket. I bought them for $300, a motley collection of mostly old brown leather luggage. One had a tag that read Fly TAA the Friendly Way with Alexander Downer, Department of Foreign Affairs, scrolled under it. Another had an ANSET tag, yet another old shipping stickers. Another was embossed with his mother's name, Lady Mary Downer. Unfortunately, the auction lot did not include his famous and loyal bright yellow suitcase. 
That one, bought by his wife to stand out on a carousel, was crushed by baggage handlers. I had assumed the cases would be empty. I thought I'd just chuck a bunch of old tax returns in them and stack them up in an appealingly shabby way in a corner somewhere. They were not empty. When they arrived, I found they were overflowing with quaint old dress-up clothes. Or were they real clothes for tiny people? Beautifully made shoes and jackets, one cute naval jacket with Georgina scrawled inside the lapel. There were dolls, a veritable bevy of creepy dolls in various states of disrepair. Was that real human hair? One of them had eyes that seemed to follow you. Well, one eye, anyway. Another was bald with mildew stubble. There were letters and brochures, but no secret cabinet documents. No minutes from that meeting with George Papadopoulos, former Donald Trump advisor. Most of the stuff in there, Downer says, probably belonged to his sister, Una. The cases looked as though they had been used, as I had planned to use them, for storage. The suitcase equivalent of junk drawers. Martincell, an hour out of Adelaide in the Barossa Valley, was Sir Alec and Lady Mary Downer's country home. Downer says the family decided on a clearance auction after his mother died, but that mistakes were made. A book Sir Alec had written during the Second World War when he was a prisoner of war at Changi was accidentally scooped up with other valueless books. Sir Alec was a lawyer before the war and a politician after it and was the first downer to become a UK High Commissioner. We wanted to keep the book in the family archives, but because of the mistake for which we are responsible, there's nothing legally we can do about it, Alexander Downer said at the time. The bag with the TAA tag probably goes back to the 1970s, he says, when he was a DFAT junior officer. I recently donated the cases to a charity auction. They were good dinner party patter, but those dolls were a little creepy and I didn't really have the room for my hipster suitcase tower. Spruiking the wares, I hinted that the suitcases may have contained a certain type of stocking. The buyer may be disappointed that it turned out they weren't the fishnets he famously wore in a charity photo shoot a decision he lived to regret. Rather, they were dainty and durable fingerless fishnet gloves. Another story, maybe, from another time. That was, I bought six suitcases from Alexander Downer, thinking they were empty. The fishnets fell out first, by Tori Shepard. The reader was Rochelle Fong. And you can see some photos of the suitcases and their contents, including those fishnets. Just follow the link on our website. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.